He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinick. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting out of AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, and AM1060 News, covering Orlando and the Space Coast, bringing you all the cybersecurity news you need to know to protect yourself, your family, your small business. You can connect with us online at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at Cybersec Radio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and by via email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com from time to time. Uh, we do take questions from our listeners on what they want to hear about uh, cybersecurity, how to protect themselves, things that they're seeing. So if there's uh, questions you want answered uh, when we do our social media segment from time to time, we will cover that on the air. So certainly keep in touch uh, and uh, uh, let us know what you would like to know about in cybersecurity. Uh, this week, right, I've been spending the last week in Luxembourg in Europe uh, with the computer emergency response team in this country, a conference they call Hack.lu. Uh, so uh, working with a lot of my peers in Europe, uh, you know, hearing what they are seeing uh, and what we need to do to protect our networks, so on and so forth, which is uh, the big news. Obviously, in this last week, you may have heard about it in, the, in uh, whatever news outlets you may have heard of, that wireless encryption, normally the, the wireless Internet, uh, there is some vulnerabilities there that could lead to the compromise of your network traffic over the air. So uh, a lot of information has been sent out through secu- uh, computer emergency response teams. Uh, and certainly, you know, we get together from time to time in various places around the world to collaborate on what we're seeing for threats. Uh, and this was a topic uh, on our minds, obviously, because there's a big vulnerability. So to kind of break it down in a simple uh, simple way uh, is that when you connect to a wireless network, if you don't have to enter a passphrase or anything like that, there is no encryption over the air, which means anybody who is within range to see the radio frequency admissions uh, is able to see who and what you're communicating with online unless you're using a VPN or you're communicating with HTTPS websites. If you do have to enter a passphrase uh, for WPA2 networks, for instance, uh, there is a vulnerability that we found that allows people to decrypt traffic that they see online. So what this means for people is that if you use wireless uh, connectivity uh, in your homes, for instance, if somebody's close enough, uh, they can start snooping on your internet traffic uh, if you're not otherwise using encryption, things like VPNs or HTTPS websites. So uh, a lot of devices are infected. Uh, a lot of computers are infected, so a lot of things need to be updated. So it kind of goes back to a point I know I've made uh, many times on this show, is always keep your devices up to date, your cell phones, your laptops, uh, and uh, devices that uh, have embedded computers in them, like access points, your wireless access point at home. So spend time learning how to keep that updated uh, to get new firmware. Uh, so that you can keep yourself protected from these kind of vulnerabilities. So a lot of news, it's been called the crack attack with a K uh, about key reuse, but in essence, 
uh, encryption was implemented uh, with some mistakes. Uh, there's some relatively easy fixes to deal with that. Uh, for me uh, and some of uh, what I've done to accommodate this, obviously, besides updating, generally speaking, I really don't trust the security of wireless networks uh, in a large, uh, large way uh, because you're transmitting data uh, over radio frequencies so anybody close enough can intercept. Uh, there's a wide variety of uh, malfeasance you can engage in wireless traffic. So, um, you know, I tend to be wary, especially when I'm connecting places that don't ask for a passphrase. And I should point out, right, when you go to a hotel, I'm in a hotel right now, or an airport where there's just kind of a web browser that opens up and asks you to accept terms of service, that provides you no encryption, no authentication. So there, you should assume that your network traffic can be snooped. So spend the time to get a personal uh, VPN service, right? Uh, there's several that I have. HMA is one, private internet access is another. You can Google those to find it. Uh, so uh, you can get those tools which provide a measure of encryption to protect your network, uh, network activity from being snooped by hackers. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. So very important steps, especially if you travel. There's a lot of uh, espionage and attacks that happen in hotels and airports, typically because there are people with information that's worth stealing that go through those locations. So uh, you need to be wary, be protecting uh, yourself uh, in those locations. Always try to use a VPN. Maybe you work for a company that provides you a corporate VPN. Use that, but whatever you do, if you're connecting to a rogue wireless uh, networks in hotels or airports, always make sure that you're taking that step to protect your network activity. Uh, that being said, going back to another point, right? And it, and it really tells us something about Internet of Things. If you think everybody probably listening to this show has an access point that provides wireless Internet access to their home, maybe they got it from their cable or their broadband company, maybe they went to Best Buy or Staples or Amazon or Walmart, whatever, to buy it. But just think, what have you done with this device? Odds are, if you like all, the overwhelming majority of people, you took off the shrink wrap, you plugged in your network, you followed the instructions, you never looked at it again. Maybe you got it months ago, maybe you got it years ago, but you've never touched it. Uh, the problem is, is there may be security vulnerabilities, and certainly now with a crack attack, there is one where you need to take the effort to figure out how to update that device, right? And that is really, in essence, the Internet of Things risk uh, that is out there when we hear about, hey, all these security vulnerabilities with the Internet of Things, is that, in essence, we took devices, DVD players, toasters, refrigerators, you name it, we put full operating systems on them, connected them to a network, and now that they're online, but the companies who make them make good refrigerators, they make good toasters, whatever, they don't necessarily know how to run highly secure operating systems or highly secure networking stacks. Um, and that means, right, you need to take some steps to protect yourself. And the biggest is figure out how to up the, update these devices, right? You know, I know gaming consoles have the ability to update cell phones, smart TVs, so on and so forth, is figuring out how to apply those updates because often they will include fixing security vulnerabilities like the crack attack, like any number of things that we've talked about on this show in the past few months, is that uh, software developers and hardware manufacturers do spend, in the general case, spend time 
trying to make their products more safe and more secure. And if you're not applying their protections, well, there's not much we can do for you, which in essence, I know we've talked about the story in the past couple of weeks, was Equifax. They had vulnerable software. There was an update available. It wasn't applied for whatever reason. And 145 million uh, Americans' credit information was compromised. The same is true for these access points and wireless devices. Right? Apply those updates. Make sure they're secure because think of all the information that crosses your wireless access point. There's a lot of sensitivity there, uh, even if a normal person, right? Bank accounts, student loans, health insurance, you name it. Right, all things that worth protecting. You don't want to get in the hands of criminals. So certainly take the time to figure out how to update these devices, how to reduce their exposure to the internet, because at the end of the day, you know, there's no one out there to protect your home network but you. You know, enterprises and big companies can hire people, hire contractors, but odds are you're not going to be able to protect your own home. But there are some simple measures you can take. Always make sure your computer, your laptop, your smartphone, and all the embedded devices like home access points have the latest updates on them uh, because that will go a long way into keeping you safe, keeping you secure, and protecting your family online. So we're going to take a short break here uh, and get to our first interview of the show. So stay tuned for that. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. Welcome back. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Sean Waterman from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Uh, welcome back to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me on, John. So a couple of stories I wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, one, the, the first one, right, uh, people are still talking about Aquifax and the Aquifax breach that I thought, you know, quick update as we're learning more about the breach and, uh, you know, what you've heard uh, and then go into a, a different story that you're talking about. So, you know, what's new with Aquifax? What have we learned here in the past couple of days and what does it mean? Well, there was an announcement from the, uh, from the group's uh, UK subsidiary that, um, uh, although they weren't hacked, the the hackers that uh, attacked the U.S. company got away with personal with with a, with a database of uh, something like 15.2 million entries. Now, mm-hmm. uh, seems to have been test data of some sort because they're what they're saying is that most of those uh, entries weren't actual people, didn't represent actual people. So the uh, but it does seem that in addition to the 40 5.5 million Americans, uh, it now is, uh, whose personal data was stolen. Almost 700,000 uh, Brits mm-hmm. had their uh, data stolen. Obviously, we don't have social security numbers over there, but, uh, you know, date of birth, address, phone number, email address, that kind of stuff. Really the same sort of personal information that would facilitate identity theft for uh, 
for criminals. Sure, sure. Actually, it's an interesting question. I've never, I, I don't know the answer to it. I mean, in the United States, uh, and I say this in part to be inflammatory, in part to prove a point, we do have a national ID. It's a social security number, and mere knowledge of that nine-digit number is almost enough to uh, take away or uh, to, to borrow somebody's identity. Do they have any kind of national identifier that they use uh, in Britain, or uh, is it just kind of the combination of just data about well, they, you? They- yeah, it's more of a combination thing. I think there is a driver's license number. Most people have driver's licenses, obviously. Um, I mean, it used to be back in the day, uh, I'm talking about the 80s and 90s now, when I was uh, uh, when I was just starting out on my own, you know, as a, uh, in, the, in the UK, it used to be all down by the address. So, you know, you could move in somewhere and find you wouldn't be able to get credit because that address was redlined because the person or a previous occupant had, uh, mm. had, uh, you know, uh, uh, absconded without paying their credit card bill. So I think it's probably a bit more sophisticated than that now, but I haven't lived there for 20 years, John. So I don't, mm-hmm. I couldn't really, uh, uh, I don't know any more about it than you do. No, that's, that's fair enough. Like I said, it was mostly just an academic curiosity of how other countries deal with, with, with that problem. Uh, so, well, they were going, they were, was a, there was a, uh, a big fight over a national ID card in the UK, but uh, in the end, I think they uh, backed off that. The Tories backed off that. Yeah, fair enough. So, no, interesting information. So, wanted to, to segue to a, a different story. It's actually related to Equifax uh, because you know the, one of the vulnerabilities uh, you know that uh, was used in Equifax you know is is one of the, the things that this organization talks about. Uh, there's an organization, a not-for-profit called OWASP, uh, the Open Web Application Security Project, I believe. They produce uh, a lot of things, right? There's a top 10 and a top 20 list of the biggest uh, high-level vulnerabilities with web applications, so things like SQL injection, so on and so forth. Uh, every few years, they produce a list. Uh, and I was actually thinking about that because I teach a class that made reference to this, uh, that in 2013, you know, here's the top 10 vulnerabilities you need to think about and was wondering, hey, you know, they should be updating about now, uh, and uh, they haven't. So I was hoping, uh, you know, to ask you because I noticed you had a story out about that. So what's going on with uh, web application security uh, and, uh, well, and the updates going on? Well, as you say, this is a very uh, it's ubiquitous, really, isn't it? The OWASP Top 10. It's sort of, you know, every, it's in your teaching course. It's probably in every <coughs> uh, sort of, uh, training or teaching course there is because it's it's just one of those uh, you know it's one of those sort of great institutions really uh, OWASP is uh, you know a very uh, uh, well established and well respected volunteer group and uh, you know they 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 have their AppSec conferences uh, every year and and as you say every few years they update the top ten. Well, they started, you might remember, John, in uh, th- this year in May, mm-hmm. and they put out uh, a, uh, a uh, release candidate, RC1, and, um, you know, the community really had a fit because they wanted to put stuff in there that people didn't feel was properly a vulnerability, like insufficient protection tools. And, I mean, the, the you know, people get ever so fired up don't they on mm. twitter and i mean people <laughs> there were accusations of um 
nepotism and corruption, God knows what else. I mean, I don't think any of that was actually credible, but certainly there was a feeling. And, you know, pa- people get very passionate about this, don't mm-hmm. they? they? And, um, <laughs> I mean, so the, the great thing about a top ten or the hard thing about a top ten list, I mean, it's like Mark Twain used to say, I, I sent you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be easy. It's easier to produce a top hundred list than it is to produce a top ten. Right. You just bung everything in there. But to whittle it down to, you know, to the, to, to, to the ten most important, I mean, that's where, the, where you have to sweat and that's where it gets hard to build consensus sometimes. So anyway, they, they had a big meeting in June, the OWASP people and the, there's new, the, 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 the two fellows that had led it to actually, you know, for 10, more than 10 years at that point, handed over the reins to a new team. And uh, I spoke to the uh, lead author, Andrew van der Stock, uh, who's a consultant with the synopsis. And he, um, you know, uh, they they basically have just pushed the publication of the new draft. Mm-hmm. So they basically took the the draft that had caused all this fuss in May and and really just uh, started from scratch. But but as you say, um, the they did tell me that the two because they're changing the the uh, methodology slightly, and uh, the two of the ten are going to be selected from a, by a. Uh, a sort of poll of of, of uh, sure. security professionals, uh, you know, and there was this survey about uh, 550 people filled out online, and and the two that came out from that were, you know, the failure to protect personal data, uh, obviously very relevant in Equifax. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you believe those guys? Can you believe that it wasn't encrypted? I mean, that's just. Anyway, I, I'm shaking my head. I really, I wish you could see me. Um, yeah. But, um, uh, you know, so, so that was failure to protect personal data. And the other thing was deserialization, which, of course, you know, the Apache struts vulnerability, which is how they seem to have gotten in uh, to the Equifax servers. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a deserialization vulnerability. Coming to the end of our segment, yeah. I want to thank you again, Sean, for, uh, for being with us and, and sharing uh, about uh, OWASP and Equifax. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on. It's always uh, fun talking to you. All right. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We will be right back. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambadek. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Previous segment, we are talking to Sean Waterman of Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. They have a lot of great content, but wanted to follow up on a different article uh, that they were reporting on uh, for a group uh, called FinFisher, uh, F-I-N Fisher, that is tied to Middle Eastern 
uh, actors or Middle Eastern hackers uh, and governments who are engaging in espionage. And we saw in the last week uh, or few weeks some reporting that they're out there conducting espionage again, picking up the pace a little bit. Uh, and using some interesting techniques to compromise individuals. So I think there's some uh, things we can draw out here, uh, some lessons learned that you can use to protect your business, yourself, your family online, right? Uh, obviously, you know, individuals, except in very specific circumstances, don't have to worry much about uh, intelligence agencies or people acting on their behalf for, uh, for intelligence and espionage. Uh, you know, some subset of people do, Certainly, but not everybody does. Uh, but the way these attackers get in, right, is there's really there's only two ways, um, by and large, for malware or computer viruses to get into a computer or be installed. The first is via email, right, uh, what we call about phishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, uh, where somebody sends you a spoofed email pretending to be PayPal, your bank, your employer, whatever, to get you to click on something, open an attachment, whatever. Uh, the other is web-based exploit kits where you go to a compromised website and, and uh, has some level of exploits that uh, affect your computer and ultimately install malware. In this case, we're talking about phishing, email-based delivery of malware. There's this idea that hackers sitting, you know, in a basement somewhere are, you know, just typing away, hacking computers remotely. But the reality is, is there's almost always some mistake somebody has to make somewhere in the chain. Somebody opened an attachment, enabled macros, somebody clicked on a link, entered their password, so on and so forth. Or in essence, subtle means of deception, right? So in this case, it was using Office documents. It did have a what we call a zero-day exploit, namely uh, using some vulnerability in software where there's not a patch yet, right? I, you know, we we talked a lot about earlier in the show. Hey, you need to patch and update your stuff. A zero-day exploit is something that can uh, lead a computer to execute instructions in an unauthorized fashion, but there is no patch or update available. So uh, they were using some of this to get into networks. Uh, these tools are very valuable uh, and certainly very useful to intelligence agencies. Uh, earlier this year, we saw the leak of the NSA's tools and how they were able to be used with WannaCry, the global ransomware outbreak. Uh, FinFish are using similar techniques uh, out of the Middle East. So you know, the kind of geopolitical thing to take note is you've got these small countries and small numbers of people who are having outsized impact because it doesn't take that much to compromise a network or to steal corporate secrets or government secrets, so on and so forth. Uh, you just need a couple of trained guys. Compare that to what it takes to build an intercontinental ballistic missile. You know, you've got to know people in nuclear engineering and how to make a nuclear bomb and then global guidance systems, aerodynamics. There's a lot of engineering that has to go into building a, an ICBM that doesn't really have to go into hacking. So it makes... Uh, the playing field a little bit more level, right? Nobody's going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe against the United States and win. We know this, right? Our military is uh, strong, the most advanced weapons, soldiers, so on and so forth, right? But if I want to have an impact, right, there are things that I can do electronically to do that. Uh, and that's 
something to keep in mind, right, is, you know, with email, you've all probably looked at your spam folder, say, here's your Viagra spam, or, hey, earn $1,500 a week from home, or any number of things. The reality is, is there's a lot of fake stuff on the internet. I know we've talked on fake news for a while, but generally be wary, pay attention to details, and look for those subtle signs of deception because legitimate entities aren't going to try to lure you. They aren't going to try to say, hey, you know, let's go after this group of people uh, to make the world a better place. You know, it's going to proceed in a somewhat linear fashion for whatever objective they set out. So be mindful of that and be careful uh, out there with particularly email that has emotional lures, gets you excited, you know, uh, try to short circuit the cognitive processes, but certainly pay attention to the contents of the email, look at signs of deception. If there's a clickable link, hover your mouse over it, don't click it, but see where the URL points to. You might have to do a right click and then, then examine it. But you know, if you see something that says, hey, give me your PayPal username and uh, password, but it's pointed to jimmyhatesyou.ru, well, you know that there's something not right there, and it should uh, be a warning sign to make sure that you don't do things to otherwise compromise your security, because there really isn't anybody to protect yourself except you. Uh, kind of going back to the original topic of these nation-state attacks and espionage, right? It's what intelligence agencies do. They spy, they try to gather information, analyze, and figure out what the future holds. Now, that being said, there's a lot of concern that some of these intelligence agencies have more nefarious purposes, want to engage in espionage, not espionage, sabotage, right? Uh, compromise their power grid. We saw a couple weeks ago some concerns about North Koreans targeting our power grid. You have these small groups who are collecting information because that's the tool they have. They don't have networks of people, but they can go after infrastructure. They might try to manipulate power systems or control systems or engage in large acts of sabotage. So certainly these areas are concerns when we talk about campaigns like FinFisher and others. We're looking at relatively small countries that are playing on a relatively even playing field with uh, the rest of the world to achieve some geopolitical agenda. So uh, the key here is even going back all the way to the election, something we started this program with. Uh, the reason that John Podesta's email got out there, they sent a password reset email pretending to be Google. You clicked on it. You entered your username and password. Well, that really transmitted it to the Russians. So they were able to delete or not delete to download all of the email that John Podesta had. A lot of the same concepts uh, are applying here with Finn Fisher and many other campaigns. So it goes back to something I've, I've talked about again and again on the show, right? Stop, think, connect. If something is saying it's there's a sense of urgency for you to act, something's saying, hey, you need to do this now, something that's trying to emotionally manipulate you, play on your feelings. Hey, you know, I'm your grandkid. I'm in London. I need wired money or uh, any number of things. Be wary of those because be wary of those to prevent uh, you know, the adversary, the criminal to use your emotions against you. Take a moment, stop, think, uh, look at what is pointed to, URL, so on and so forth, before you connect. So important to just take that steps, be wary, especially if it's asking for important stuff. Hey, install this application, you want to be uh, have some scrutiny. 
uh, give me your social security number, have some scrutiny, right? Uh, and certainly there are uh, campaigns out there that will engage in zero day exploits to just compromise your machine. You might not have any effective means of prevention. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a real problem. But always make sure you're running an up-to-date antivirus. If you're running Windows 10, right, or if you're on Windows, make sure you're running Windows 10 and have Windows Defender uh, fully configured. And make sure you have all the security tools that we talk about a lot installed, right? Antivirus, a good strong access point, uh, and some security in there to prevent yourself from becoming a victim of the zero-day stuff. There's only so much you can do to prevent yourself, but you can mitigate risks. If you're talking about ransomware, you're concerned about that, making sure you have strong backups to recover uh, in a certain incident is also another good thing to do. So we need to take a short break here. Uh, we're going to come back, talk about some more uh, stories here of the week. So stay tuned for that. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back to your final segment of Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Segwaying to a different story, I know I made fleeting reference in the last segment to North Korea. There's a great article in Bloomberg this week. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of people curious, right? How did North Korea build an army of hackers? Army is a little bit of an exaggeration. It's not like there's tens of thousands of them. Uh, but they certainly have, you know, a relatively moderately trained uh, cadre of people who are engaged in offensive hacking activity worldwide. And it begs the question, how does an isolated country like North Korea build that kind of capability? I like comparing this with... Their, their missile program, for instance. You know, there is a whole supply chain and a lot of interlocking parts to build an effective intercontinental ballistic missile. Right? You need to steal the designs, the materials, develop your engineering capability, find a guidance system, so on and so forth. Uh, they've struggled through that process as a country, uh, but now they actually do have, uh, I, I wouldn't say the most reliable missiles, but at a certain point, if you put a nuclear warhead on the end of a missile, it doesn't have to be terribly accurate. It just has to be somewhere near uh, where you want to hit, and it causes great devastation, right? They managed to do that between stealing materials and black market parts, uh, and have done okay considering how isolated they are, right? Not a good outcome by any stretch of the means, but uh, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, you, you respect the accomplishments of your adversary. That being said, they realized early on, right? Could we launch a nuclear weapon at the United States? Yes. There is no ambiguity in that. We know where the missiles come from. We know where they land. At a certain point, that is a country-ending disposition, right? Not that it would be a terribly good day for us, but if you dropped a nuke on San Francisco... North Korea would not exist anymore, and they know that, right? Despite their their behavior, they're aware of that. Uh, so while they're still developing that capability, they spent a long time going back to the previous uh, leader of North Korea, 
saying, you know what, we need to develop our offensive hacking capability. Uh, one, because it uh, certainly helps us develop our missile program, our ICBMs, weapon systems, so on and so forth. In fact, I believe last week we talked about uh, they, uh, North Korean state-sponsored hackers, stole South Korean and U.S. war plans uh, using uh, vulnerabilities and security software. So uh, certainly it gives them good intelligence also. Uh, but they've been talking, uh, targeting and looking at our electric, electrical grid, looking at some other things to create impact in ways that are somewhat ambiguous. Um, I know many people have seen a lot of the conversation about election-related hacking. Was it Russia? Wasn't it really Russia? It is, in fairness, very difficult to fully attribute something in a way that stands up in a court of law. Normally, a lot of what I do is intelligence. I don't have to worry about a court of law. But there's still some scrutiny about my conclusions. I have to sit there and justify it. And it can be very difficult to come to a conclusion, hey, you know what, this was North Korea, or this was China, or this was Russia, uh, based on evidence that's mostly in the hands of the bad guy, uh, and usually organizations trained to lie. So uh, that has some advantages, right? If they were able to shut down the power grid in uh, parts of the country during the dead of winter, you know, there'd be ambiguity of whether they were really involved. Was it somebody who was just topped up on goofballs and did it? Was it another country making it look like North Koreans? Versus if they launched an ICBM that is all but asking for a genocide response. No moral judgments there, but, you know, there's going to be a military counterattack. If there was an attack on our energy grid, if we couldn't with 100% degree of confidence or even at a high degree of confidence say it was North Korea, likely they would get away with it. And a small country like North Korea, uh, who develops this capability, figures things out, can have an outsized impact at a certain point. The playing field is level on the internet because it doesn't take that much to develop this kind of capability. And that's what this article kind of goes into. Over a period of over 10 years, closer to 15 years, they said, you know what, this is going to be important. We're going to take highly uh, people with high intelligence and aptitude for these kind of things. We're going to get them the training. In some cases, send them to China to get it. Uh, you know, really spend time forming these people. You think about what it costs for ICBM. It's tens of, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you think about what it costs education for one person, uh, you know, from uh, middle school, high school, college, right? It's not cheap in the United States, but it's much less than eight figures. You train 10 people like this, you give them resources, they can have a very large impact. And we saw that with WannaCry, which some people have attributed to the North Korean government, where the National Health Service in the United Kingdom shut down. They had to redirect patients. So they sent these highly trained people, they sent them, you know, other places to get training, figure it out, uh, and become capable people. Because not only is the country of North Korea so isolated, its internet is isolated, there, they actually uh, put these individuals, these, in essence, military units, in hotels. It used to be in China. Now it tends to be more in Vietnam and other countries of that sort, where they put them in uh, these hotels, which have high-speed Internet. They get three hot meals a day, you know, certainly better accommodations than they would get in North Korea. 
and they have a base of operations to engage in their activities, right? Espionage, sabotage, doing the work uh, of intelligence agencies. And while it takes some resources and some access to training, it's actually far less than what they were able to accomplish with their missile program. So I said, if you gave me 10 people with, that had aptitude in programming and math and science, uh, and you gave them to me for 10 years, I can groom them into uh, an effective hacking force also. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be cheap, but far cheaper than what they're spending their money on. And they invested in this, and they realized this would net them great returns. So a lot of good information in this article. How are they able to do it? Uh, you know, just because you're North Korean doesn't necessarily mean you're completely isolated. You can go into China, some other places. Um, you know, they got their training. They have a base of operations outside of North Korea in many cases where they're able to carry out their activities. And it's a fairly decent life for, you know, in comparison to what you would typically get, typically get in North Korea. So, uh, you know, they're able to do what they need to do from outside the country. So uh, they spent a lot of time thinking about this problem. Kind of contrast that to the United States. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit in future episodes about, uh, you know, our, our skills shortage, what we're doing to train the next generation of professionals and where we're falling short. North Korea realized, you know what, they can get a lot of their national objectives by training people in this, sending the China, investing in that. They don't have a lot of money, but they have some. They had enough to do this. Uh, and they invested in them and then put them up, gave them accommodations, gave them a base of operations in the United States. You know, we're a little bit behind the power curve. We certainly do have our offensive hacking units also uh, and defensive, uh, all within U.S. Cyber Command and the like. But, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about a skill shortage. And certainly I know from my experience a little bit in K-12 schools and uh, other places, uh, you know, a lot of people just are unaware uh, of cybersecurity, what they need to do to protect themselves. Simple things like, you know, when your iPhone says, hey, it's time to apply iOS, you know, uh, whatever the latest version is, you probably should do that, of not clicking on links. A lot of things that we talk about on this show, we need to integrate into K-12 education. We need to integrate into college, not just to train the next generation of cybersecurity professionals, though we need to do that too, but train people generally of how not to be a victim, how to spot those subtle signs of deception so that they cannot be victims themselves. They don't open the attachment. They don't click on the link. They don't give up their password because in the end of the day, right, it comes down to, as I mentioned, malware and tools get in via email or web-based exploit kits. In all cases, there's a measure of deception involved and teaching people those critical thinking skills to spot deception also helps with problems like fake news. So uh, some things to think about, you know, things that we need to integrate into our educational programs, uh, you know, not just in Florida and Illinois, but, but all over uh, and probably in every country in the world. So that brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, hope you got some information out of it. You can connect with us on our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. If you want to catch the podcast version of the show, search for Cybersecurity Today Radio on whatever podcasting software you use. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio. My personal Twitter account is at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and via email, johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. 
for our social media feature, we do take uh, listener questions. If there's something you uh, want to talk about, dissect some scam you saw on email, uh, certainly love to hear more about that and what you're seeing out there. Uh, and again, a special thanks to our radio affiliates, AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, and AM1060 News, covering Orlando and the Space Coast. Until next week, you've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Pamanek. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay safe out there. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek.